0: Pacific climate change stakeholders convened in Suva last week to solidify their plans to put pressure on the global community to take climate action ahead of the UN's annual climate change negotiations next month. A two-day Pacific Climate Justice Summit brought together key players in the region to consolidate their priorities in the lead-up to COP27 in Egypt from the 6th to the 18th of November. Pacific Islands Climate Action Network's regional policy coordinator, Lavetana Langi Seru, says the event centred on the voice of the communities who are at the front line of the climate crisis. He says civil society groups are ready to support their governments at the Global Climate Conference to ensure the best outcomes are achieved for people living on the front lines of a worsening climate. He spoke to RNZ Pacific's regional correspondent, Kelvin Anthony, about the summit outcomes. It really centered the voice of climate affected communities, centering the voice of grassroots communities who are at the front lines of the climate crisis, who often do not get the platform or the space at the regional level to highlight some of the real challenges that they are experiencing. And so the summit covered some of the key broad themes of loss and damage, climate mobility, so displacement and uh, relocation and migration. It also covered gender and social inclusion, oceans, adaptation. Adaptation and, and, of course, climate finance. So, will these be the key priorities for for the region? For the civil society, these are some of the key priorities that have, you know, emanated from our, you know, series of consultation with members, and so from the summit discussions and also from the side event that we had, we've sort of drawn some of the key, you know, uh, messages, and also not only messages but key recommendations, really, not only for COP 27 but also for our Pacific Island governments in how they can effectively advance climate justice with our, our local communities. So how do Pacific governments effectively enhance climate action with, with local communities? The, the recommendations that have come strongly from the two days, for instance, on, on loss and damage, there needs to be, you know, so you have this global facing work around, you know, the call to establish a loss and damage finance facility which communities are in support of and also having loss and damage as a sort of a permanent standalone agenda item in future COP meetings. So uh, not only COP meetings, but the subsidiary body meetings uh, at the intersessionals. But there's also a recognition that there's not a lot of work that's done on the ground to sort of capture some of the the impacts of climate-induced loss and damage in communities, whether that's related to culture and traditions or even issues like mental health, which is a non-economic loss and damage. There hasn't really much effort being done by our own governments in the Pacific to capture all that. So this is some recommendations that have come from the two days. And then you have uh, discussions around how do we make climate finance more accessible to the communities? So one of the challenges the communities are facing, civil society organizations we are grappling with is access to climate finance. So that they're able to roll out climate adaptation project, climate resilience project that builds, you know, community resilience, whether it's around food security or whether it's around looking at alternative livelihood sources for the community. This is something that the communities have highlighted that, you know, they do not have access to right? why is it that the communities have difficulties accessing climate finance. This is something that come, you know, that I heard in uh, coming from the summit is the need to address access, eh, both at national and local levels, and, and perhaps a reform in the larger public climate finance architecture, so that we can further enhance the flexibility, the openness, and the speed of climate financing disbursement. And that's really uh, one of the challenge and that's limiting many grassroots communities and organizations from accessing climate finance, right? Right now it's just uh, national accredited organized entities that are accessing climate finance for instance from the the green climate fund and other uh, bigger multilateral uh, banks and financial institutions that are providing climate finance but it hasn't really been made open or, or flexible enough so that grassroots organizations can access even small grants and so there's a need to to reform that so that communities can directly apply for funding. One of the things that came from the summit was a their support for the establishment of the Pacific Resilience Facility that the Pacific Island Forum is setting up, because then it's going to be a you know a dedicated funding pool that communities and civil society and other non-state uh, actors can reach out to. So I, I guess that's one of the, the challenges that's been highlighted and some of the recommendations. Oh, I understand that uh, that Los and damage which uh, Pacific Civil Society has been very vocal in terms of you know having a dedicated uh, finance facility for loss and damage and I understand that it is now on the COP27 agenda you no. Great to hear that now it's made it to to the formal agenda of COP27, and I think that has been that's owing to the the work of civil society organisations across the world that has been putting pressure on uh, parties and head of deleg uh, head of delegations, but also to you know AOCs, the G77 uh, plus China that have been calling for loss and damage to you know to be part of the the formal agenda of COP loss and damage you know is an issue that the pacific is already um, experiencing you know in era of loss and damage we're seeing uh, multitudes of not only economic but also non-economic losses and damages um, taking place in our communities as a result of the warming uh, planet and we really need to and it's also you know it's just a third pillar of um, the paris agreement and should be given that you know adequate attention like adaptation and also mitigation we hope that that from COP27 that one of the key outcomes from that is not only the you know, the the scaling up and operationalization of the Santiago Network on Loss and Damage, but also that becomes a a permanent standalone uh, agenda item. So it's discussed in all future COPs and that there must be, uh, you know, we cannot continue in, you know, circles of conversations and and dialogue year in and year out um, during every COP. We need to come up with some practical Action and and one of the outcomes that we are calling for and we are hoping for is the establishment of a a finance facility on loss and damage that really will address some of the the issues and uh, the challenges that frontline uh, climate-affected communities are experiencing. It must be separate from adaptation finance because it's not about adaptation. This is about how do we continue to preserve our cultures and traditions in the face of you know the, the climate crisis. And really, this is a litmus test of COP27. What are the plans now for the Pacific Civil Society between now and, and COP27? We are now beginning to consolidate most of the, the key demands, the key asks, so that we can now work on our, you know, advocacy and communication strategy. We're we working with a number of partners, including uh, crop agencies, to see how we can harmonize and how we can amplify and elevate these demands and issues at COP27. The Pacific Civil Society is also, stands ready to support our governments in any way we can. And so we've already, you know, begun to, to reach out to some of the Pacific Island governments to for how best we can support their work at COP27.